0: For those that know me, you know that my, I don't preach from notes. Uh, I normally pace around and jump around like a maniac. And uh, my preaching is normally pretty unrehearsed. Uh, for the next six Shabbats, I will be preaching strictly from notes. Ain't that fun? All right. I can see how much you like my jumping. So what will I be preaching about? Well, if you go on the Mishkan David website, uh, www.mishkandavid.org, uh, in the About section, you'll see our congregational tenets of faith. There are 12 of them bulleted out, little summarized bullet points, 12 of them. You may or may not be familiar with them, and I certainly don't expect anyone to have them memorized, but it's important that we as a congregation have them. It's important because when people come here, it's important for them to know what we as a congregation believe and even what I believe is the one serving here as as the rabbi. So there's an expression that I bring up often, two Jews, three opinions. And to be honest with you, the Jewish people can't fully own that. The same goes for Christians. The same goes for all believers. You know, two theologians, 800 opinions. Yes, Paul. Oh, okay. So, Father, we lift up the children. Thank you. So, we lift up the children to you right now, Lord God. This is what happens when uh, some folks are out. Father, we ask you to bless them during their class. They're going down to their class? Yes. So, Father, we ask you to bless them during their class. We ask you to speak to them through Brandon through what you have had him prepare for them today. Father, we lift them up to you. Reveal yourself to our youth, to our young people. Make yourself real to them, Lord God. You know how to transcend generations, and we lift up our youth to you in Yeshua's name. You may be released. Just the kids, not you. So there's an expression, two Jews, three opinions, and like I said, the Jewish people can't really own that. Two theologians, 5,000 opinions, just ask anyone, like, anything about end times. So a Messianic Jewish community like ours is we're quite a mixed multitude. People come here from various backgrounds. They come here with various even theologies. Some people are Jewish and have found Jesus there as their Lord. Some are Christian. And even of the Christians, there are so many varying Christian the- denominations that are out there that enter into this place. So with such a mixed multitude, it's important that we can coalesce on the important aspects of our faith. Uh, there are many things in the Bible that are debatable, that are open to interpretation, uh, but some things are critical. Some things are important. Some things are so foundational that we felt it important enough. This is me and the elders a couple of years ago, to wordsmith a couple of tenets of faith, just so the congregation knows what is foundational to our faith here as the, at the congregation, and really what is immutable versus what can be debatable. So we're in the season of the counting of the Omer. Everybody know what that is? It's the, uh, the counting of the Omer is the 50-day count-up between Passover and Shavuot. I learned this week that Karen Harris is really excited about the 50-day counting of the Omer. Between today And Shavuot, between today, this Shabbat, and Shavuot, or Pentecost, we have six Shabbats. And each of these six Shabbats, I will focus my sermon on one or more of our 12 tenets of faith. We'll get through all 12, and obviously some will be combined in one sermon. Now, our documented tenets of faith are concise, they're summarized, they're bullet points. These sermons are going to delve into the details underneath those points. For the two or three of you that really love my jumping and shouting, I hope that these six sermons won't be boring to you. For those that can do without my jumping and shouting, these six sermons may be a refreshing break. After these six weeks, we will have six videos. Yes, we will have six videos Put together, which will be put on YouTube in a special playlist called something like What We Believe at Mishkan David. And these notes, these bulleted notes that I'm reading from is accessible to anyone. I will make them accessible to anyone that wants to read them. So today we're going to go over tenant number one. And tenant number one is about the word of God. The tenant of faith, as as it's written in our documented tenants of faith, as it's written, it says, we believe... That the Bible, consisting of both the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Brit chadashah the New Testament, New Covenant, is the complete revelation of the righteousness of God and the description of the lifestyle and standards of the redeemed community. It is the only inspired, God-breathed, infallible, and authoritative Word of God, which cannot be added to or subtracted from. And in our tenets, we always list also some scriptures to back that up. So this tenet speaks about the authority of the Word of God and the description, how it describes the lifestyle and standards of the people of God. And I will speak about both of those topics today. What is the word of God? What isn't the word of God? What is the standard of lifestyle for the believer? What isn't? So a little bit about the word of God. Psalm 19, Psalm, 119, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. The word of God is a precious gift from the Holy One of Israel himself a precious gift from God to mankind. We learn from the Bible pretty quickly that when God created humanity, humanity quickly messed it up. Humanity's tendency leans towards evil. And by our own, we will always veer that way. We messed it up in the garden? We messed it up before the flood? We messed it up at the Tower of Babel, and we mess it up and keep on messing it up. We lean wicked and left to our own and to our own version of morality, we just will continue to go southward. But God gave us a remedy. He gave us his word. He gave us, in black and white, an instruction manual for living on this planet in a way that's pleasing to him in a way that gives us life and freedom and power and blessing it is a gift from god when god gave the torah the initial word of god before it was expanded with books of prophets and other writings when the initial word of god came to the people of israel on, from mount sinai it is a it is an absolute precious, genuine, we cannot overemphasize the beauty of this gift of his word, of of what he views as right and of wrong. It is precious, and we at Mishkan David, we honor so much the gift of his word. This is why we process it every week. For those that are unfamiliar, Newcomers that come to the congregation and they're unfamiliar with the Jewish congregational customs may not understand why we lift up this thing and we hold this ornate object and we parade it around. You know, it may look foreign to you, and because our Torah scroll, it's ornate, it's decorative, and without understanding, it looks like we might actually be worshiping a thing to the untrained eye. It's not that. This is the word of God. Nothing more, nothing less, and we rejoice over it. Psalm 119, verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. This is why we celebrate with the actual word of God, written by hand, by a scribe, in Hebrew, on parchment, which is what that is. It's the word of God. And we honor it. Some scriptures about the word of God Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Yeshua said in Matthew 7, verse 24 Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The word of God is eternal. Like God, it has no beginning and no end. Yeshua said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is life. The word of God is health. Psalm 107, verse 20 says he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. So what is the Word of God? When the books and letters of the Bible, of our Bible, were written, when the books and letters were written, there was actually no codified Word of God at that point. There was no codified Bible. There were the, there was the Torah, and there were various scrolls floating around, books of prophecy, some letters, historical books. It wasn't all put together. The Bible as we know it wasn't fully codified, Until the 4th century, several hundred years after the events and circumstances of the New Testament that we read. Even the Old Testament wasn't codified until around the year 90 CE, after death. So when we see the term, the Word, or the Word of God, employed in our Bible, whether it's King David in the Psalms or Yeshua himself, often it's actually referring to the Torah. The five books of Moses. Even the gospel writer John, when he wrote that in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word became flesh. He was referring to the Torah. But as time went on, the Word of God, the term, the Word of God, meant not just the Torah, but the full scope, the full breadth of God's written revelation. When Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6, verse 17, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he equates the Word of God with the sword of the, the sword of the Spirit. He was referring to the entirety of God's Word, not just the Torah, the full scope of God's written revelation. The Word of God consists of the Old and the New Testaments. It's often called those, which in Hebrew are called the Tanakh. Tanakh. Don't say that next to somebody too closely. You'll spit in their face. The Tanakh and the Brit Chadeshah, another one that'll get a little spittle going. So the term for the Old Testament is Tanakh. Tanakh is actually an acronym. It's a common practice in Hebrew to create a word out of an ac- an, acrony- an-, an acronym. Create a word out of an acronym. Uh, an example in English would be NASA. We know what NASA is, right? So NASA is actually an acronym, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. We don't say it's N-A-S-A. We call it NASA. We made a word out of it. That's very, very common in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture. Uh, many rabbis, ancient rabbis, are given nicknames which are acronyms. You may have heard of the rabbi, the medieval rabbi Rashi. Rashi is actually an acronym, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki. You may have heard of Maimonides, Rambam. They call him Rambam. And no, that's not what little drummer boy plays. They call him Rambam because it is an acronym of Rabbi Moses Ben, my mom. Rambam. So Tanakh, like T-N-K or T-N-K-H, is Torah. That's your T or your Tav. Nevi'im, which is the word for prophets. That's your Nun or N. And then Ketuvim, K. Torah, Nevi'im. Ketuvim. That is the, those are the words where the acronym would be like T-N-K, except in Hebrew, which is Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Torah is the books of Moses. Nevi'im are the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Je- Isaiah Jeremiah, etc. And the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, etc. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, those are often called the Old Testament in, in Christian circles. We use that term here as well. The Brit Chadasha, Brit Chadasha is the New Testament or the New Covenant. Now, and that the Hebrew words, Brit Chadasha, means New Covenant. Testament is like an old English way of saying covenant. Brit Chadasha is actually New Covenant. Now, this division of the Bible into Old and New Testaments is an absolute human construct. God sees His Word as one, there's one word from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one word. It's a human construct to actually separate it. This is the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. From God's perspective, his word is one. The New Testament, or the New Covenant, is not just a collection of gospel writings and historical accounts and letters. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, "Well, I will make a Brit Hadashah, New Covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. And then Yeshua in Matthew 26, verse 28 says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. At Mishkan David, we believe that both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, as as a collection, that is the word of God. At Mishkan David, we do not consider the apocryphal books the word of God. What are the apocryphal books? There are various books and letters that are outside the standard canon of Scripture. There are Jewish apocryphal writings. There are Christian apocryphal writings. Examples are the books of Jubilees, the books of Enoch. There's actually Psalms 151 through 155. There's a second book of Esther. There's a book of Maccabees, which actually chronicles the story of Hanukkah. There are different gospel accounts, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Mary. There are different epistles, the epistle of Barnabas. There's the Acts of Paul. There are others. We don't view them as scripture. There are religious groups that do. The Catholics view some of them as scripture. The Ethiopian Christians view some of them as scripture. As a congregation, I do not want them to be viewed as scripture. Some of people may glean some wisdom from them or some understanding or some historical context, and that's fine. But the the stance of the congregation is that they're not scripture. It's a slippery slope to start adding to the Bible. It's a slippery slope, so read them at your own risk. They are not scripture. Uh, We know that whoever decided certain books were canon and some were not, we admit that those were man. It was humans, it was theologians, Jewish and Christian, who did their best they could to look at the whole compendium of letters and prophecies and scrolls and say this is scripture and this isn't. But we put our trust in God that he had his fingerprint on all of that. And the, I guess you could say the standard Protestant Bible is what we view as the Bible, as the Word of God. And like I said, it can be a slippery slope to believe that apocryphal books are the Word of God. Uh, we believe the same when it comes to the Jewish oral Torah. Now, if you don't come from a Jewish background, you may not be familiar with the oral Torah and the Tanakh, um, but the same thing applies. We don't view that as the Word of God. So what is the Tanakh and what, I'm sorry, what is the Talmud? Sorry, the Talmud, the Talmud. What is the Talmud? What is the oral law? Judaism has a large collection of traditions, of what's called halacha, which is the way you keep the commandments, stories. The Jewish custom is that all these were passed down orally from the time of Moses up until it was eventually written down. And as w- when it was written down, it was, it was called the Talmud. It's a very, very large collection of detailed instructions on how Torah should be kept according to Judaism. And it's necessary. We understand the need for it. The Torah, when Israel was its own nation, when it was governed by the laws of Torah, there had to be consistency in how it was kept. Because that was a legal document for ancient Israel. It wasn't just the books of the Bible, it was a legal document. People were brought to court. If they broke some of those laws. So there had to be consistency. Somebody's brought to court for they broke Shabbat. Well, what did they do? They, what did they do? Did they take a jog around the Sea of Galilee? Did they, did they, how did they work? How did they break it? This was brought to court. There had to be consistency. So when court cases happened, Judaism started to write down, okay, almost like the, what has been happened, what has happened with the American Constitution. You have the Constitution, but when courts cases are finalized and precedents are made, it becomes law. That's what happened with the Torah, and now we have this collection of oral law or tradition, but we don't view that as the Word of God. Judaism actually believes that the oral Torah came down to Moses at Mount Sinai, Right along with the written Torah, and we as a congregation uh, don't believe that, Judaism actually views their Talmud uh, not only as the word of God, but as a higher level than the written Torah. And that's exactly the issue that Yeshua had with the Pharisees. Uh, The issue is not having tradition. Everybody has tradition. The church has many, many traditions. The issue is holding tradition higher than the word of God. So uh, the oral Torah, the oral law, is not the word of God, but as a messianic synagogue, we will respect it. And we do even unknowingly adhere to some of it. Why are our, for those who are wearing uh, talits today, why are the, s- the fringes tied a certain way? It's Talmudic. It's from the Talmud. Why do we sing the Shema every Shabbat? It's the Talmud. Why at our Passover Seder do we have things like the haroset and the parsley and drinking four cups, etc.? It's tradition. It's from the Talmud. So, tradition. So, And there are many passages in the New Testament that can only be fully understood in the light of Talmudic tradition. Why in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24 does Paul speak about getting, quote-unquote, 40 minus 1 lashes from the Jews? When the Torah prescribes... 40 in Deuteronomy 25 verse 3. It's because the rabbis of the Talmud limited it to 39 to be sure not to go over the max of 40 ascribed by Torah. It's Talmudic. The only way to fully understand that is to understand the Talmud. So at Mishkan David, we we respect it and we revere it. And for certain laws, we may even adhere to it for tradition's sake and to be a light to the Jewish people. And especially even since Yeshua said that the Pharisees sit in the chair of Moses. But we don't view it as the authoritative word of God. But know that Mishkan David is a Jewish space where Jew and Gentiles come together as one in a space that honors Torah and also honors Jewish tradition. Sin... And righteousness. The Bible explains what is sin. And what is sin is unchangeable. What is listed as sin can never be called not sin. The Bible says days, evil days will come when sin will actually be called not sin. Good will be called evil. Evil will be called good. At Mishkan David, whatever is, whatever is sin, whatever is described as sin, we won't change it. Even if it's culturally inappropriate. We'll never change it. Here We'll always stay true to the plain sense of what these scriptures mean, even when it comes to sexual purity and sexual immorality. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 19, says, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Yeshua's words. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass. From the Torah until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we believe firmly that the Torah has never been abolished, the laws have never been abolished. There is a predominant Christian belief that the Torah, the laws of Moses, were abolished on the cross. This cannot be, according to the words of Yeshua himself. Anything in the New Testament that reads to you like Yeshua ended the law, it must be a misinterpretation. It must be. What ended was our legal punishment for breaking the law. He took that punishment upon himself. The laws did not go on the cross. The punishments of the law went on the cross. So for the Christians that state that the law is done away with, I can point you to many scriptures in the New Testament writings where the apostles tell us to not commit idolatry, to not murder, to honor our parents, to employ justice, to love our neighbors. It's all Torah, all of that. So to you, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, you are far more Torah observant than you give yourself credit for. The question of, is the Torah done away with, always resolves to the ceremonial and cultural aspects of the Torah. It's never about the don't kill and don't steal. Everybody admits they're still in effect. The question is always around the what to eat, when the Sabbath is, what holidays to celebrate, and what to wear. Anyone that says the law is done away with are usually referring to those laws. And this leads us into the part of the tenets of faith, which speaks about the word of God describing the lifestyle of the redeemed community. So at Mishkan David, we uphold the lifestyle prescribed by Torah. We do that congregationally. When it comes to the cultural aspects of the Torah, me, I, and the congregation will never force it upon your personal lives. Congregationally, we do it, but in your own homes, you are free to observe, you're free to not observe. That is our congregational stance. You'll never get judgment from anyone, from me, you may get it from others, you won't get it from me. If anybody chooses to do whatever it is, eat a pork chop, worship on Sunday, whatever it is, you'll never get judgment judgment from me. If you get it, it ain't from me. And it's not the congregational stance. So as a congregation, as best as we're able, we do congregationally at our congregational events. We do knowing we're under God's grace, adhere to those ceremonial and cultural aspects as well of Torah. This is why we keep the biblical holidays. This is why we have our worship celebrations on Saturday. This is why at our events we keep kosher food. We have kosher food come in. It's because as a congregation, this is what we do. And that's important to us. Do whatever you want in your house. We are, as a congregation, Jew and Gentile as one. But it doesn't translate to, The Gentiles bring the bacon and the Jews bring the brisket. (laughs) It doesn't translate to the Gentiles bring the Easter eggs and we bring the matzah. It doesn't translate to having a joint celebration of Christmas and Hanukkah. That's just not what we do. There might be congregations that do that. But Mishkan David is a Jewish space. And we're Jew and Gentile coming into a Jewish space as one. And there's never, ever, ever a distinction between Jew and Gentile here. Ever. We come together. There's no distinction. But we do our best to maintain Mishkan David as a Jewish space. And we do adhere to the cultural aspects of the Torah in that Jewish way. So here's a question. Does that mean that anyone who does not keep one of those cultural commandments, are they actually sinning? Is there someone in the world, because the Bible speaks about what's sin and what's not sin, is someone in the world who eats a pork chop, are they sinning? Is a Christian who doesn't worship on Saturday but worships on Sunday, are they sinning? This is a debatable thing, and I say this gently, but the congregational answer and my answer is no. They're not sinning. It's not my view, and it's not the view that I want to come down from the congregation. There are many aspects of Torah which are universal. The New Testament speaks of many of them. But the cultural aspects of the Torah were never meant to be universal. If they were, we would see Paul and the apostles charging the Gentiles to keep kosher, to wear the tzitzit, to keep Shabbat. We would see it all throughout the New Testament, but we don't. The topic is expressly debated in Acts 15, Verse 5 of Acts 15 says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. The conclusion of the apostles in verse 28 and 29 is absolutely clear. Quote, it's, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay hands, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from acts of sexual immorality. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. These were the minimum requirements for Gentiles to enter into the Jewish space of that time when there was a standing temple and not to be an offense to the Jews. Adherence to the, to the Torah's cultural commandments, this is how I like to say it, and this is what I want you to take home. Adherence to the Torah's cultural commandments, to eat when to celebrate, is not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's always been that way. There might be some that say in the Torah it says there is one law for both the for both the native and for the foreigner. That verse doesn't apply. To Christians around the world. That is when somebody who wasn't Jewish came in to live in the land of Israel alongside the Jewish people to live according to how they live to live exactly with them side by side. Christians spiritually are grafted into Israel spiritually are the common wealth of Israel. The day is coming that Yeshua is going to come back, and I believe that the whole Torah is going to go across the whole world. I believe that the whole of Torah will eventually be the law of everyone. But right now, Christians are spiritually Israel. They're not living side by side. So there's no instruction that once a Gentile accepts the Lord, that they have to start keeping these things. But this is where Christianity gets it wrong. It doesn't end there. It's not an obligation, but the invitation is always there. And there are more and more Gentiles who are embracing the Jewish roots of the faith and saying there's something in there that's for me and are being drawn to this by the Holy Spirit Not by obligation, not by judging eyes or judging voices, but by the Holy Spirit saying, this is mine. This heritage is mine. And the New Testament concept that when you accept Yeshua, when you accept Jesus, you are spiritually part of the commonwealth of Israel, that is awakening in Gentile Christians, and they are desiring. This is why, even in simple, simple ways, we see Talitsa churches, we see shofars It's a simple, simple step towards what God is doing. The prophets say that the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It is the end game. I truly, truly believe that. But in this time that we're in, God gives an invitation, it is not an obligation. If you hear from anyone that you're obliged, it didn't come from me or the congregation. And I know it's a debatable issue and it's a sensitive issue for some people. But the congregational stance is that if you're not obliged to do it. These cultural aspects, we do it as a community, as a community. But as you employ it in your life, the Holy Spirit may guide you towards that. The scriptural backing for this, one of them is Romans 14, verses 3 to 5. This is what Paul writes. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person values one day over another, another values every day the same. Each person must be convinced in his own mind. So in speaking about lifestyle, I also want to say this. There are many things we could do in this world which may or may not be profitable, but they're not explicitly sinful. Let me explain from a personal perspective. And this is also important. I want it to come across this is what I believe, and this is the attitude that I, I want the congregation, I want to come forth, in the congregation that God has entrusted me with. So, people that know me, especially a little prior to me becoming the rabbi here and then in the first couple of years of me be, being the rabbi here, people know that I was a Beatles nut. Maybe like Robbie. People may remember that I was like completely obsessed with the Beatles. Like completely obsessed. I loved to listen to them. I loved to study them. It was more, they were more than just a band. They were like an obsession. And I would bring it up often in my sermons and people that knew me personally knew that that was the case. I've also preached here that when I listened to the Beatles, I got to this point where I listened to the Beatles, I would go, I would be transported somewhere else in my mind. Even if I was driving, I would just be in this other, like a trance state. And this used to happen to me. Until a couple of years later. Why it didn't happen immediately, I don't know. But a couple of years later, I was listening to the Beatles, and I was in this kind of place of reverie. And I was like somewhere else. And all of a sudden, God spoke to me personally very clearly. It's One of those times we hear God's voice audibly. A lot of people will say, I don't often hear God's voice audibly, but this happened, and I did. This is one of those times where I did. And God said, as I was doing this, what you're doing right now is sin. It's sinful. And it's evil. That's all, all he said. It was very, 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 very clear how I heard those words. And I went, oh, oh, my gosh. And I repented. And when I did, the strange thing happened, which I didn't expect. Number one, my desire to do that was gone. Number two, my love for the Beatles severely diminished. I did not expect it. I went from in a moment, literally in a moment, obsessed with the Beatles, to like, yeah, they're okay, just another rock band. That's what happened when the word of God, in his timing, convicted me in a moment. And in a moment, whatever I was doing that was evil to him fled. I experienced what I believe was deliverance, even though it didn't manifest in ways that you may think. It was momentary. It was just, with, oh, and a repentance, and it was gone. And the obsession was gone. Even so, that this happened to me, I would never tell anyone here, don't listen to the Beatles, they're evil. I would never do it. It's not a one size fits all thing when it comes to the things of the world. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 says, All things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Here is a list of things which are permissible, but may not be profitable. Watching a Harry Potter movie, or any horror or fantasy movie, playing a role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons, drinking alcohol, listening to heavy metal rock music, using a cryptocurrency... Taking pharmaceutical medication, including, but not limited to, vaccines. Smoking cigarettes. Here is the truth. Satan has his hook in everything. Everything. Just look at the dollar bills in your pocket. They got pagan symbols on them. It's everywhere. Anything can become idolatrous And pull us away from God. It's not a one size fits all. Stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away. We can't always do that. And many believers, including believers here, do have very strong boundaries against certain things. They'll never watch a Disney movie, let's say. That must be respected. But it's personal conviction. It's not sin to watch a Disney movie. Many believers may just never watch, listen to a Led Zeppelin song. That must be respected. It's personal conviction, but it's not sin. If somebody came to me and said, I'm going to do this or that, or what do you think? I would say, just be careful. Just be careful. It's okay But be careful. This is why relationship with the Holy Spirit is critical. Why after about seven years of being obsessed with the Beatles, the Holy Spirit told me in a moment that my obsession is sinful and I need to stop. I don't know why it took seven years, but I'm thankful that I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit when he can speak into me and say, stay away from that. There's a hook. The issue is not the thing. The issue is with the hook. The hook, and the hook could be in anything. It could be in shopping. We have to shop, it, but people can have a hook. It could be something. It could turn into something else. There are hooks in everything, and I encourage you to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, so you know where to put boundaries in your life. Because God may say to you, "That's unholy. That's got to go," but it's not a one size fit. All for everything. If somebody tells you stay away from all these 10,000 things, they're speaking from their own personal conviction and even from what they view as wisdom. But from the congregational perspective, I want you to know we don't have doctrine. Don't watch XYZ or don't listen to XYZ. May the Holy Spirit guide you in all things. Remember, Satan is the ruler of the world. He's implanted himself in everything. And anything can become idolatrous. And when it becomes idolatrous, it becomes sinful. So be careful is, is, the, is what I want to project to you, is what I want to say to you. It's not sin, but just be careful with these things. We need to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and keep boundaries when he tells us to. But It's not one size fits all. If anybody here feels it's one size fits all, that's a personal conviction and it's respected. But it's not. So in conclusion, again, Mishkan David, Tenants of Faith, the tenets of Faith, the first tenet, reads, we believe that the Bible, consisting of both the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Brit Hadashah, now you know what both of those are, is the complete written revelation of the righteousness of God and the description of the lifestyle and standards of the redeemed community. It is the only inspired, God-breathed, infallible, an authoritative word of God, which cannot be added to or subtracted from. And today we learned some of the details around this tenet. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any two-edged, double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Matthew 7, 24 says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And John 1, verse 1 to 3, says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he, Yeshua, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. And those verses are a great segue into next Shabbat's teaching, which will be on Tenants 2 through 4, which are about the nature of God, about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.